you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. Chris Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com, thechrisvossshow.com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys being with us today. Be sure you refer the show to your friends, neighbors, relatives. Tell them to sign up for the Chris Voss Show podcast. Uh, you can also go to all the groups we have on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, Instagram, all those places where all the kids are at these days. You can go check them out and all that good stuff. Uh, just look for the Chris Voss or Chris Voss Show. You can find multiple groups out there. Go to goodreads.com, see what we're reviewing and reading as well you can check that out uh we have a storied author and journalist and uh television celebrity yeah i guess you call him uh on the show today chris matthews of uh the old show hardball if you remember him from msnbc and of course he has a storied career we're going to be talking about uh all of his life just a magical sort of thing of him witnessing all these brilliant events his new book that's uh come out june 1st and uh, you're going to want to check this baby out. It's June 1st, 2021. This country, my life in politics and history. And it's going to blow your mind. I right? just saw the stuff that's in it and all the stuff he's accomplished. I, I think there are a few people that had, can go through their whole life and have so many magical things happen to them. And this episode is brought to you by a sponsor, ifi-audio.com and their micro idsd signature it's a top of the range desktop transportable dac and headphone app that will supercharge your headphones it has two brown burr dac chips in it and will decode high-res audio and mqa files we're using it in the studio right now i've loved my experience with it so far it just makes everything sound so much more richer and better and takes things to the next level ifi audio is an award-winning audio tech company with one aim in mind to improve your music enjoyment of quality sound eradicate noise distortion and hiss from your listening experience Check out their new incredible lineup of DACs and audio enhancement devices at ifi-audio.com. He is the author of the New York Times bestsellers, Bobby Kennedy, A Raging Spirit, Jack Kennedy, Elusive Hero, Tip and the Gipper, When Politics Worked, Kennedy and Nixon and Hardball. He is the former host of MSNBC's Hardball with Chris Matthews. Welcome to the show, Chris. How are you? Thanks, Chris. It's great to be on. Um, and uh, everything you said is true. It's <laughs> a good start. <laughs> well, I hope so. I hope so. It's on Amazon. So there you go. Uh, but congratulations on the book. Congratulations on all the work you're doing lately. Uh, what uh, are your plugs for people who can find you on the interwebs and order the book up? Well, I just think Amazon and Barnes & Noble and your local bookstore. It's, it's out there. I've checked it around. People keep sending me pictures of the book on shelves. So, you know, I like to support local bookstores, but if you want to do it fast, Amazon. There you go. There you go. There's all sorts Costco, of Costco. Costco. My wife Costco. and I were in Costco the other day, and they have stacks of my books there. But oh wow! So you can I don't know how many book buyers go to Costco, but they're there. They bought a ton of books from. Yeah, well, hopefully they buy them in bulk, right? Well, I know they bought like over twenty thousand books. You know, there you I go. don't know. That's nice. Go. That's good. Yeah. And hopefully they'll keep buying more. I think they will. It's a, it's a book. It's an amazing book and it's an amazing life that you've taken and lived. Uh, so 
what motivated you want to write this book? You've written a lot of great books too. If you want to plug those out about the Kennedys and different things we were talking about before the show, but you've written a lot of great books. What motivated you to write this one and whatever else you want to cover? Well, I got to the end of Bobby and a, a lot of people love the Bobby book and I wanted to write, uh, I, I guess I began at the age of 70 something. I began to realize that, uh, I'd done a lot of, I was sort of like Forrest Gump. I was in so many events and they won't, they weren't Photoshopped. I actually was there. I mean, starting in all those years in Africa, I mean, teaching business, but basically, uh, you know, communicating with people and uh, people older than me who treated me like a son. And I'd be riding around on my motorbike, my 120 Suzuki out in the middle of the African bush. The only guy that looked like me, the only person that looked like me, skinny white guy, if you will. And among people who are rural farmers, small business people, very small. And, you know, I, and then hitchhiking by myself from Swaziland, if you look at it on the map, it's Eswatini now, the name of the country, all the way up to Kilimanjaro by myself, just a thumb. I mean, wild things that, uh, you know, going to having a black mamba trying to jump in my car window, frightening <laughs> snake. And that's something not to laugh about at the time, but oh my God, I was glad. It was right at my window, I was looking in the window. It was frightening. You're dead in 15 minutes. Uh, the um, uh, hitchhiking over Victoria Falls, seeing that amazing wonder of the world. But mainly it comes down to uh, being comfortable in a far off place with a different language, different culture, different look, different way of living. A lot of subsistence farmers, people that you'd wonder, how do they get from the beginning of the year to the end of the year on a very small crop of corn or maize? How do they do it with their cattle? I guess a lot of them would sell cattle once or a cow once in a while, make some money and pay for more maize. But then coming back to Washington and knocking on doors, I didn't know anybody. Knocked on a couple hundred doors, and I finally got a job as a Capitol Police, a patronage job. And I was that for three or four months. And then I got the job as legislative assistant to a senator, Frank Moss from Utah, the last liberal senator from out there. And then working my way up to working as a speechwriter for President Carter with him to the very end. I mean, I was on Marine One when we went to he went to vote in Plains, Georgia, knowing he was going to lose by about 10 points. He'd gotten the poll results because we got the poll results about one in the morning in, um, in Seattle, the last speech. And um and just seeing the pain on the guy, the good guy, uh, knowing he's going to have to go tell. He said, don't tell my wife, I'll tell Roseland. That's all he said to us, don't tell my wife, I'll tell her. Because mm-hmm. then he had to tell her when he got down there. And I, remember, I remember looking up at the, the old train depot in Plains, Georgia, and there they were, the two of them, where they had started the campaign five years before, the first campaign. And he was telling her, and I, I averted my glance, I said, that's a private moment you know this guy has to tell his wife that it's all ending up with a defeat and then working for six years with that incredible legend tip o'neill from massachusetts the speaker who went day to day battling reagan occasionally cutting deals but battling him every day i was his wartime consigliere basically and he hired me he said all dogs can learn new tricks and we were i know he's just I'm, I'm older than him i'm older than he was then now but you know, he had six years every day, went up against Reagan, this movie star, good-looking political glamour guy. And he's this old local political guy from Massachusetts. And he took him on. He's a street corner pilot. He took on this movie star. And um, every day he showed the courage to do that. And then this, when he retired, I went into journalism. I went started with the San Francisco Examiner, the old Citizen Kane newspaper, actually. This is the beginning of the Hearst Empire. 
Yeah. I'm very proud of working for the Monarch of the Dailies. Is that a great name? The Monarch of the Dailies. <laughs> the Monarch of the Dailies. <laughs> great. And, uh, but I went back and watched Citizen Kane on an airplane the other day. And it's still, what a great movie. It holds up. My God, is it a great movie. And uh, doing that and then covering everything. The Berlin Wall. I was over there interviewing the East Germans as the wall was coming down and asking what was going on. Why is this happening? And they tell me about how they're treated as second-rate citizens by their own government and uh, couldn't go to the local hotels. Couldn't Their currency was a joke. Um, they'd had it. And also one guy asked him, why, what's freedom mean to you? And he said, talking to you. They just wanted human freedom, wow. political freedom. And, and to be and able to talk about any subject, I imagine. Yeah, well, they, one woman said, you know, we want to talk about capitalism and socialism, but we want to make the decision what we want, what kind of government we want. They were open mm-hmm. to the conversation. They weren't, they weren't anti-socialist in pr- principle, but they knew that their government sucked. Mm-hmm. It was terrible. The Politburo had all the advantages, but the idea of socialism did appeal to East Germans. The idea of, they said, they didn't want to have a sharp elbow society, as they call it. They didn't want people fighting with each other over money. They like the idea of sharing. I mean, it's a pretty idealistic Christian idea, and they wanted the ideal still. But they also, I think, some of them were headed towards re- reunification with the West, but they definitely hated that wall and uh, <laughs> hated the Iron Curtain. I mean, they were, yeah. they were prisoners of it. Yeah. By the way, I went to Cuba a couple of years ago, and it's a very similar situation. Uh, really? Wow. The way that government is run. The way that government is run is run the way the East Germans. Maybe... Yeah, just a Western version of that. Um, and then to, to go to South Africa, after I, I served in a small country, Swaziland, it was called then. And we weren't allowed to cross the border into South Africa, which was three quarters of our border for South Africa. And they thought we were Reds. I mean, the nicest thing they said about us is that we were do-gooding intellectuals. They pronounced that South African accent, do-gooding intellectuals. I didn't know if any of us were intellectuals, maybe maybe a few of us, maybe. <laughs> But they're pretty regular people in that Peace Corps group. And uh, but uh, and then they go back in 94 and, and see what and I've been back a couple of times, been back with uh, an African-American delegation from Congress when they went over there to argue with F.W. Bota about his form of government right across the table from arguing about the very notion of apartheid. And um, and then they come back in 94, thanks to Mandela, Nelson Mandela, who insisted he wouldn't leave prison unless they legalized this party, the NC and the Communist Party. He wanted a true election. He wanted democracy. And over there, thanks to him, I was able to watch people lined up to vote from one horizon to another. It was mm-hmm. astounding. And I was walking around with Archbishop Tutu, his ally, as he went to vote for the first time. And, you know, these experiences, are, not everybody gets them, and I wanted to share them. You ask me why I write the book. I mean, I try to... And so, when I've been to speeches that are effective, and that, but they tend to be your books. And Jack Kennedy once, what, what was the guy really like? Or, you know, what was the situation like? What was it like to be there? And I try to write that. But th- this is the first book I wrote that wasn't about somebody else, but it was about my experiences. Mm-hmm. And I, had, I figured it's about time I wrote it. And yeah. uh, we'll see. <laughs> it's definitely we'll see. about time. And then, and then you have to write the next one for the next 75 years. <laughs> Easy for you to say, young man. 
<laughs> well, thank you. Amazing for you to say. So you've, you've lived this story life, 20 years of witnessing politics and commenting on it on MSNBC. Everyone loved you. Uh, well, you know, most everyone loved you. I mean, that's one of the problems. No, I had my get... critics on the left, on the hard left and the right. Hard left and right. Yeah. So I'm stuck somewhere center left. I'm not stuck. That's where I chose to be. I mean, I, I feel center left. I always figured mm-hmm. I would be one of the conservative members. There was a block of them in the British Labor Party who were on the right, the center right. That I would feel comfortable with them. I mean, not with the real lefties, but allied with them. Yeah. Has, does Mika uh, Brzezinski uh, still miss the hardball opening? <laughs> You're getting cute. I, I know her as a colleague. I don't know that that fact. I know that she's been very supportive of me in the last yeah. couple of years. And uh, her she used dad, to brag. I, I do write about her dad in the book. It's uh-huh. uh, a big, so I pronounced it right. It's always a hard one, but it's a big. And he was national security advisor to Carter. And he was a very important guy. I mean, like one of the heroes of operation. I mean, you didn't mess, you didn't talk to him. He's so up there. Uh-huh. And uh, I remember going over to get his approval for a speech one evening. And it was about, the Russian invasion of Afghanistan. And I was writing a speech about physical fitness or something. And uh, it turns out that it was right after that invasion. So Carter would have had to put in his opening remarks, something about that attack on Afghanistan by the Russians, by the way, the second country in history to know don't invade Afghanistan. (laughs) The the British were wiped out. The Russians Russians. were, we all saw Charlie Wilson's war. They were thrown out by helicopter by those, uh, those the shoulder-mounted missiles, the stingers that got them out of the yeah. sky. In fact, yeah. they'd be telling jokes of the air in that movie. On the radio, you could hear the pilots telling jokes, and there he is, the guy with a stinger missile blowing them away. I mean, it was pretty, <laughs> rough, pretty rough stuff. But right. uh, I remember getting a, trying to get permission from Brzezinski. We had to clear our speeches with the top guys, and, and I said, the Russians... The barbarous behavior by the Russians. And he looks at the, the word and he says, barbarous. You expect me to, and he's in black tie. I'm in black tie because we're both going to some press dinner. And that made me feel really important. I'm going to the same dinner as him. Yeah. And this guy, uh, he said, I'm supposed to prove that on the run? <laughs> barbarous? <laughs> so I had to go back the next morning, but he approved it. Carter used it, so. So you've had a great life. I, I brought up Mika because Mika and Joe uh, used to always talk about on the show about how she always wanted to stay up to be able to hear your opening hardball, you know, delivery of whatever yeah. the opening line was. And so uh, that's well, why I brought kids that do. up. Five-year-old kids like it. You know, my audience tends <laughs> old, of course. But there were some kids, grandkids probably of the regular viewers, who uh, would go, they loved the way I said, let's play hardball. Yeah. Just that one, that yeah. one, let's play hardball. <laughs> It was the speed. But most of my viewers were my age, and they're very affectionate to me when they bump into me. All the years, they, you put in an airport someplace, a woman yeah. would come up to me and say, maybe a woman in her 60s, maybe younger, say, my husband watched it till the end. I mean, it was very personal. People, you don't, yeah. you, you'll get to learn this. Yeah. People aren't just listening to you. They're, they're your company. Mm-hmm. You're their company. Yeah. And uh, you... Uh, you know, I watched Johnny Carson for years. You guys, Johnny Carson was a gift of good company for us because if you came home on school vacation and you didn't have any social life, you get a Coke, some uh, peanut butter and crackers, <laughs> you know, cheese and crackers, and there's Johnny Carson waiting for you to give you the party of your life. Oh, yeah. 
I grew up like you did on Carson, uh, and uh, my grandma used to watch him religiously. I think it was before or after the Lawrence Welk show. <laughs> oh, yeah. <it> would <laughs> my be. grandma would make us watch that, too. And uh, Number one, number two. Yeah. And uh, I could just see him doing it. The bubbles are in the back and shit. Uh, You know what? You reminded me of a great story. I'm up in Montreal the week that Bobby gets killed, right before a primary date, Tuesday. And I'm I'm, a friend of mine. We're wandering around trying to find a a TV because in those days you had to find a TV to watch in a bar usually. And uh, we're trying to find some bartender who would turn on the, the, uh, debate between Gene McCarthy and Bobby. And of course, the, the nationalist, the, cute, the Canadian guy goes crazy. You come in here and you want us to watch your shows? You know what he was watching? Lawrence Welk. <laughs> so that was his idea of Canadian nationalism, you know. I watched Johnny Carson a lot to learn how to be a better host. I don't know if it's working or not, but I, I watched him a lot on how he deals with stuff. He's he's one of my favorite hosts to watch and, and see how they do stuff. So let's go back to your history. You you grew up as an Irish Catholic uh, in Philadelphia. Kid, uh, you grew up like I did under the deaths of the USSR. You're worried about the USSR nuclear bombs, yeah. figuring those, those old but stuff. I did it before they even had missiles. I, we thought they had something. We thought the nuns thought... I guess it was airplanes. They thought these bombers would come over and mm-hmm. drop at what we used to call atom bombs on us. And they said, 15 minutes, there'll be a flash of light, we think. And then the end of the world. Yeah. And that was the old USSR. I mean, I, I still every now and then will refer to Russia as the USSR. I think of it as like a giant thing. I do, too. I said Soviets. Yeah, the Soviets. It's like. By the way, the... could we be on to something? Could we be on to something? Could we be on to something? that Putin is no different than the old KGB officer yeah. he was, that this, his national, and how much of the Cold War was really about Russian nationalism? How much was ideology and how much would Russia mm-hmm. just want to protect itself and or rule the world? I mean, mm-hmm. what were they doing? Why were they so supportive of Castro, so supportive of Ben, ben Bella in Algeria? Why were they arming the, uh, the Mozambicans and the uh, Angolans? Why are they so keen on that? Was this idealism or is it expansion of their power, of their empire? Mm-hmm. You know, what do you what do you see in that? Because the empire of America almost seems to be fading, if you will. I mean, China is definitely rising, or you know, under the last regime. <laughs> I think is the correct word. Yeah. Uh, you know, we we saw a lot of you know America really consolidating and shrinking from power and its influence in the in the world, and and uh, you know, there's a lot of interesting things going on and dynamics going. What what do you see as the future of America and the and the empire of America? I guess. Well, I don't think we've ever been since Teddy Roosevelt territorial about it, but we like the idea. Some people do it like that. It's like we're number one, just the whole other. We're number, I never really thought that was that important, but number one, what? It depends. Um, I do love American exceptionalism in the sense I wrote about it in the book, which is we're the only country you can come to and become an American. You know, it's not like the French or the Japanese, especially Japanese. We really can't become a Japanese, I don't, from everything I've read. Uh, but, uh, and that's why it's very difficult for those war babies, you know, what are you going to do with a war baby? Who's, you know, it's two races, a mixed race, uh, not well accepted, uh, kind of thing at all. It's, it's always uh, a challenge there, but I, I think, uh, I think the Chinese did something that was remarkably dangerous for us. They, they figured out they could deny political freedom, but allow, capitalism state capitalism that they could really produce like we do i don't think they're ever going to be as good at producing 
novelty or innovation. I think you have to have a, I just, I just believe you have to have a free society to be innovative. Mm. And uh, every dictator in the world, the bad guys of the world come here when they're facing death. They all mm. come here for our health care. We don't have a great distribution system, but we have an amazing ability to produce the best medicine, the best surgery. And they all come here, every yeah. one of them, the Shah, everybody. Um, so we are good at state of the art. We did the, it doesn't surprise me that we invented most of what we live in the, with in the world. Uh, I think the, uh, the COVID-9 uh, success there, uh, I think we're able to uh, produce it faster than anybody thought. And that's, that was a combination of mixed capitalism, part government, in the case of Moderna and the others, uh, and part uh, free enterprise or capitalism. I still think that's the magical formula. Mix it up. But the Chinese figured out that they don't have to have freedom to have economic success in terms of production. They can produce when I was growing up, you had to buy your trousers or your, or your shirts from something that was made in the Carolinas because, you know, the textile industry moved from New England down to uh, the south because of labor costs. Now it goes to China for labor costs. No big surprise. But you could now you can go into a, a gap and you can buy a sweatshirt or a pair of uh, Levi's or I mean, a pair of khakis or you can buy uh, any kind of shirt. It's already cut for you. Seventeen and a half. 34, you know, it's there. You yeah. take it home with you, you put it on your word that night. In the old days, you had to take your trousers, you had to turn them over to some somebody, <laughs> a tailor, to put the right hem in or the right cuff in or not cuff. It, it was very, and men don't like that. Men like to go to the store, get it, put it on. They do not like fussing around with some tailor and talking about it. And you want to get in and out. So that created all cotton, by the way, all cotton. Everything comes from China and Vietnam and a place like that. It's cotton. Of course we love cotton. The more the cotton, the better it feel. Actually, it's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember I bought a shirt in Washington when I was first adult. And I bought these shirts. They're really great-looking blue shirts with button-down collars. They're 875 or something. <laughs> I said, these are great. These look really good. I took them out. This is August in Washington. You don't want to wear those shirts. This is out of Edgar Allan Poe stuff. These, these shirts don't breathe. Don't these are taken from the dead, these shirts. They were horrible, but they were what you got to buy in those days. Open yeah. trade, free trade has hurt the working person in this country, but it has allowed the consumer options they never had before. It's, cars are better because of the German and the Japanese and the Korean competition. Without a doubt, better cars. They used to have a car. You'd buy a car every two years or every year because they're planned to be obsolescent. Trade has been good for quality, mm. but it has enhanced the Chinese ability to compete with us. It's no doubt about it. And by the way, what are they doing with that money, that traded surplus? They're going into Africa and buying everything under the ground. Yeah, all the and, they'll build a, and they'll build a, a highway or a train station, a train uh, line. And then all they'll ask for it is rights to the uh, subterranean wealth for the next 50 years. And these people, are they're good at it. Be, yeah. You could argue ruthless, but they, the, and the poor governments over there have nothing, subsistence, income. They have very little tax base, and they have to give their people something to keep them alive. Yeah, and 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 <clears throat> so the Chinese come in and offer them capital developments. They offer them trains, everything, and they bring their own workers in. They feed and house them, and then they take them back to China. So they all the only cost was the was the uh, the currency that they picked up from us because yeah. <laughs> we're borrowing from them all the time. And then you know? they, they've been repossessing ports and doing all it's like they'll repossess yeah. parts of a country. Which is kind of Wouldn't it be interesting, uh, Chris, to get into their, their, 
central planning board oh, where yeah. these guys sit oh, around yeah. and they plan the year 2040 yeah. or the, the year 3000. And they're sitting there playing. By then we will own Africa. By yeah. then we will have, um, of course, they're going to have some foreclosures, whether they like it or not. Not everybody's going to make it on these nets. <laughs> they might just say, you know, yeah, you're 20 years digging our gold. You're getting out of here. You know, yeah. I would assume certainly the, China, the, uh, the debtor countries will stand up to them. But what are we going to do? Yeah. We're still borrowing trillions. And, and then to my understanding, they have the largest naval military now. They have the Exocet missiles yeah. equivalent where they can knock out any one of our uh, any of our ships, warships. Yeah. Yeah. What good's a battleship? What's good a, a cruiser? What good's any ship if one hit? Yeah. Eliminates it. What happens if they make a move on Taiwan? We mm-hmm. don't know. Will it be a subtle move like an embargo, some sort of somewhere just put their big arms around Taiwan says you're back home and you know what do we do? Probably yeah. not much. Yeah. I worry especially about with them owning the South Chinese Sea. Well they start building these islands. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> they're building military bases <laughs> where there was nothing there was no dirt there in their building. I've been teaching, I'm a distinguished professor now at, at Fulbright University of Vietnam. I've been doing that this year and last year. And uh teach American politics and American media and bringing a lot of my colleagues in to help me. And um I think they've got their eye on what's going on in Hong Kong, what's been going on. I think yeah. they've got their eye on what's going on in uh, potentially in uh, Taiwan. Mm-hmm. I think all those Chinese, all those uh, Asian countries have to think about what you raised the issue a few minutes ago, which is China. It's not yeah. just us. Yeah. China, this joke, the joke is China only had two bad centuries. <laughs> haven't you heard that one before? I haven't no, heard no, that before. That's good. They didn't get, they were, colonized they were exploited yeah but uh beaten up by the japanese but uh the long-term look at china is it's amazingly productive culture yeah it's going to be interesting how it all plays out i mean especially with the population growth uh slow here slow in china they just expanded that um three the three babies yeah yeah so i want to get back to they also have their population growth of poverty which we don't see yeah. We see the bourgeoisie, but we don't see the backcountry yeah. of, of the immense uh, people living in an earlier age. Yeah, and the and the Uyghur um, concentration camps, basically. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing that we're having to. We just sit. We just sit back and watch. And oh, that's what we did with uh, Russia. Yeah, they called the nationalities issue. Remember nationalities? Mm-hmm. Everybody wanted to be treated better than they were and the, the, mm-hmm. the countries the empire of the soviet empire came apart it started with yeah. jewish immigration and the uh, refuseniks and the word got out hey if they can leave why can't we leave yeah <laughs> seriously <laughs> they want to how come they get out we can't get out give me, me out you know uh one of the things you talk about in your book your your storied history you started out in politics uh as a capital police officer um and uh, you said something really beautiful on The View. A cathedral of democracy is what you yeah. referred to, the Capitol Police who protect that beautiful building that was sieged on January 6th. What were your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, Chris, think about, is there any other place in America? I mean, I do think about the Lincoln Memorial having that sort of uh, reverence for me and everybody. It's, what, Washington is a pretty secular city. You know, it's really about democracy. And mm-hmm. I think about uh, Lincoln giving the second inaugural address at that Capitol, maybe the greatest speech in history, which tried to explain 
the loss of 600,000 casualties in the Civil War with mm-hmm. people shooting at each other across the field with no, they didn't even have uh, foxholes. They just shoot at each other's chest. Yeah. Americans, the same religion, most of them all are Christian, you know, Protestant, Catholics, they're always Jewish, I guess, and they were all Americans and they were all killing each other. And he tried to explain it in biblical language that this is what God has brought back, what was taken by the whip. And he understood it was the whip. It wasn't something in, in uh, lost uh, going with the wind. There was no, there's nothing kind and pleasant about slavery. Yeah. And he understood that. And he said that they will be paid for by the sword. And right, trying to justify the hard that America had gone through and was still going through, to try to explain to America there was some biblical justice in this. It wasn't like some terrible mistake. It was ground out of our history. And uh, I think that, and I think about debating the slavery itself in that building, mm-hmm. uh, the civil rights bill coming out of that building with mostly Republicans for it, Everett Dirksen. And the history, uh, it's our, the British trying to get in there. I remember I talked to some, one of the shows I did, I talked about when I was a cop that I would show people, even later when I had a big job there, I take people to the holes and show the bullet holes in the steps coming up to the uh, first floor of the Capitol from the basement, where you can wow. see the British uh, the muskets had fired their way in, wow. had, had shot their way in. You know, you know, when you get really think about it, think about the fact that those guys on the airplane over Pennsylvania, they say, you said, let's roll. And they, yeah. they charged into the cockpit and the plane went down. Mm-hmm. And that plane, we most people think, was headed for the Capitol. It made yeah. sense. One for the Pentagon, one for the Commercial Center in New York, and one for the Capitol. And they never made it because of them. And so we've had enemies that have been trying to destroy that Capitol. And uh, I felt defiled. I felt like, you know, I, I actually spent some of my life, a short part of my life, defending that building. And more importantly, I spent my life walking through it. You know, it's a great place to work in the summertime, by the way, because it has like a you're like, you're working in a, uh, uh, what Eskimos live in England. Uh, it's like in England. English, yeah. It's totally cold. It's totally cold in the summertime. And yeah. I had a parking place out front, and I was an aide of the speaker. And I had a nice desk, and I'd sit there like a Mandarin, dealing with people that came in and working for him. And so much of my life, I loved that place. And yeah. the cops I worked with, were a lot of them are country boys, ex-military guys. Probably a lot of Trump voters, even today, I would expect, just knowing culturally. And yet, I think they would, and one guy said, I'd die for this place. And yeah. then he, when we're just talking, and he said, of course, I wouldn't do anything for that, for that uh, riverboat down the street. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a competition among buildings in Washington. There's one you will die for, one in the hell of that place. <laughs> it's an interesting tribalism. But uh, I, don't know, I learned from those guys. So, yeah. I love I that line, though, Cathedral of Democracy. That was just a, such well, a beautiful what we line. Got. It's yours. Sure. Yeah, it's all of ours, yeah. Now, uh, let, let me ask you this. Uh, you ran for office. If yeah. you had won, what would, how would that have changed your life? Well, you know, I grew up in the era when um, – I'm 75. I grew up in the era when running for Congress was a roadmap to running for president. Mm-hmm. Jack Kenny was a congressman. Jack Kenny was a senator, but nobody would be talking about him today if he was a senator. But he went off and became a president, and so yeah, it would all be about promotion, advancement, uh, ambition. I know, and in Philadelphia, I have would if I'd beaten the machine, the old organization, which is still there, pretty powerful. I would have to keep fighting it until I somehow we assimilated to each other and they accepted me. 
no, it would have been a challenge. I, of course, I know I immediately start thinking about the Senate, Pennsylvania. I just know how I'd be thinking. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I thought about it again big time to go for the Senate when I got well-known back in 10, because I'd just come off of the uh, Obama campaign, which I loved. I, I'm open about it. I wasn't just thrilled up my leg. I was thrilled everywhere. I just thought that was the greatest campaign. And I would go around following him in places like Philly, and the whole crowds were cheering him. And when they saw me, they cheered me. I mean, I just, it's called, especially African-Americans. And I go, oh, my God, I have a following out here. Uh, and I thought, this is doable. And I'm like, Obama, I believe in what he believed in. I'm a moderate Democrat. And I thought, this would be a great career. But I hadn't been home since before college. And I, it, it took a big job. I also couldn't make the leap because you'd have to quit one job, be out of work for X many months, and then go for the for the House, for the Senate job, it's kind of hard to do that. Because I find that I have a a five-minute or 20-minute conversation with someone. Next thing I know, it's on social media. Everybody (laughs) just can't wait. I mean, you're going to ask them, what do you think I should run? Okay, hey, Chris Madison is going to run, you know. And so I was top of the fall, Philadelphia Inquirer, Matthew's thinking of running, very positive piece, and then Matthew decides not to top of the fall again. But I... uh, I tried to. I, I. I don't know. Maybe I think. Hey, look! If you played it one way, I could have won the Senate. I would have been one of the candidates for president. Who knows? Mm-hmm. I think about that once in a while, but not too often. I. I was glad. I think I'm better at following politics. That was that was going to be my next question for you. Do you think if do you think that the path you ended up on with having you know the career at MSNBC and being on for 20 years, you were mm-hmm. a pioneer in that too as well. Um, what, do you think you accomplished more or did more? with that show and that path than you would have maybe if you would have, you know, ran for the house and then sent. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, that's a better this way is a good way to grow up. Just (laughs) always say the decision you made is the right decision. But uh, I was chicken. I I think, I think if I remember Bobby Kennedy, as I wrote the book, he once said his problem with his campaign, which was very erratic in 68 before it was shot was I don't have a Bobby Kennedy. Jack had Bobby. Uh-huh. I mean, having a brother like Bobby is one of the greatest things you could ever imagine. To have a brother who's yeah. so devoted to you that he would do anything for you, and he was brilliant and ruthless and unbelievable as a brother. Yeah. As, he is the guy you want. He was Michael, you know, in The Godfather, in the sense that he was like, "God, don't get in this guy's way. This guy, <laughs> this guy is going to win, and uh, he's going to be not too concerned about the feelings of those on the way. He's just going to get it done." And Jack wasn't like that. Jack always wondered, does that guy not like me? How come he doesn't like me? Bobby didn't care. <laughs> but Jack was always worried. Doesn't he, doesn't he like me? Why does he not like me? Uh, Bobby, uh, those two brothers are very different. Jack never wanted to be alone. For example, he would, uh, he wanted me to went to bed at night. Um, he had Dave Powers stay with him to the very minute. He didn't read in bed like I do. He, he, he wouldn't let him leave. He'd say, turn out the light, Dave if they're, you know, and that way, Bobby on the other hand loved being alone. The very yeah. different personalities. My brothers are like that. I guess. Yeah. Well, Bobby had like eight kids or something, didn't he? Or ten kids, or he had a lot of kids. He probably enjoyed some alone. I, time. I don't know if Jack wanted that many. I don't know. If, I don't think Jackie wanted that many. Uh, that was out. It was a hell of a lot of kids. Uh, yeah. But so did their old man. Yeah. They came from nine. Yeah. My wife did I say Jack or Bobby? I came from. Huh? <laughs> did I say Jack or Bobby with eight kids? I see. Bobby, you got it right. I got it right. 
So let me ask you this: with with uh, I mean, Carter, Ethel was always Ethel was always pregnant. I mean, she was yeah. always having always having babies. You know, yeah. for years. Yeah, he had a lot of kids. That's probably why he enjoyed some quiet time. You know, <laughs> I think he liked. I think he liked to be Papa Bear. I think he liked having all those kids around. It seems to be yeah. So you worked for Carter for a long time. Did did is is Carter really an unsung uh, president for us? I mean, he seems like such a great uh, humanitarian. I mean, you you see him. He takes these falls. He gets these bruises on his face. He's out still doing the Habitat for Homes. This seems like this is probably should be one of our most treasured presidents. In what a like a really good human being he is. Well, he had, I, I think he had great values. And uh, let's see. He was concerned at the time about energy and conservation. And his answer was conservation. I did more wells, but conservation, which is not a popular American notion, you know, put the sweater on, live a little colder, uh, be a good person about it. Don't try to rape the continent or rape the planet. You know, he didn't say more, more, more drilling. Uh, and uh, he did push for human rights, but there's always going to be exceptions like the Shah of Iran because we had all that oil we needed over there. Yeah. Or we thought we did. And with, and with gas lines, people were thinking only about gas lines. But he really did push human rights, like in Russia. He was he was serious. Mm-hmm. He thought to do that. Uh, I think nonproliferation of nuclear weapons is a huge issue. Yeah, not that he had to fall into the hands of wacky people and killers. Mm-hmm. We're still been lucky. Just think about it. Since, since Hiroshima and Nagasaki, no nuclear weapons have been used in war. It's just, you yeah. know, Thatcher was right about that. Thatcher said it saved us from Third World War. Mm-hmm. nuclear weapons because they're so horrendous if so but so, Carter was good on those three where he was probably shouldn't have been president in these times is that he didn't he was a pacifist I really do think he was and I, I don't have any judgment about that except for being president and a pacifist it's a hard what are you going to do with this military establishment what do you do with it all mm-hmm. uh, you have it and the world knows you have it and uh, you have situations develop like the hostage taking uh, I'm not sure there was a military solution unless you go to war. Mm-hmm. I think another president might have gone to war. They would have said, you took our 50 hostages, that's an act of war, let's go at it. Mm-hmm. And hundreds of thousands of people would have been killed. Right? I think Reagan might have. I'm not going to knock Reagan anymore, but a certain kind of president, W might have done it. Um, w especially. Uh, Dick Cheney would have definitely done it. I was going to say, do you mean President Dick Cheney? <laughs> yeah, I think Dick Cheney would have been the one you touch, you touch, you you know. Don't touch my stuff, or I kill you. Like the stripes, remember stripes? Don't, yeah. Don't touch my stuff, I kill you. Yeah. Uh, but Carter said, "No, I care about is getting the hostages back." And he, I don't think he ever fully appreciated the uh, mortification most Americans. I think I'd throw a part of a beer at me one time at a bar during that. It was people were oh. so angry. He's a friend of mine too. They're so angry at the humiliation of having our guys trooped around. You know, uh, every night on Nightline. America called held hostage. It was called every night. Humiliate. Watch these blindfolded Americans, the flag being burned. I, I mean, it's just they were fighting words, and we yeah. and people hated it. Mm-hmm. And Carter kept talking about getting the hostages back, and and I, I think he missed the moment. But I'm not sure there was whatever it was. He he couldn't handle the hostage crisis, and uh, they knew it, and they they played him. But if- Reagan, the one thing Reagan did was fire the air traffic controllers when they went on a wildcat strike and broke their contract with the government. And uh, that apparently, according to Tip, Tip O'Neill, 
he had found out his buddy Dwayne Andrus of Archer Daniel Vinland was over in Russia. And the Russians were impressed by that. They said, this guy's not Carter. This guy's tough. Mm-hmm. And they, they usually try to size up their enemies on their toughness. And they usually figure out, Russians love knowing one American. In this case, it was Dwayne Andrus. They let me get their American. Mm-hmm. He tells them what's going on over here. But I think you got to send the word. I was an RA in college. I loved it. My favorite job. Maybe. I'm an RA. I had a hall. Maybe another guy I had room in my had a hall, hallway to keep away from drinking beer and all that. This is at Holy Cross up in Worcester. And I, my strategy was from the beginning, keep aloof. Uh, don't fraternize. Laugh at them once in a while, but really don't do anything that shows that we're equals. So they know that I would, I would get them if they, if they broke the rules. So I never oh. had to screw anybody. I wanted to know right up front. I'll turn you in. You'll be out of this school. You're drinking beer on this car, which is pretty strict. But I knew that if I scared him enough, one of the kids said to me at the end of the year, yeah, yeah, you, you, you never got us in trouble, but you scared us all the time. And I figured it was better to scare him than to hurt him. <laughs> so, I mean, that was my minimal example of power. There you go. When I really had some power. What made you want to get into politics? What, what drove you to this field? You know, I think it's brain soup. You're just born with it. Uh, I was interested. Uh, yeah. And it was long before Kennedy and all that stuff. I mean, I was fascinated by it. The human <laughs> drama of it, the competition, the uh, exposure. I mean, I remember sitting in our rec room. Everybody had a rec room in the 50s. Just a basement, really, with a TV set. That's our rec room. <laughs> That's a rec room. And we're watching uh, the results of the 58 midterm elections with my dad. And we're watching Avril Harriman, the governor of New York, the Democrat, you know, old money, rich guy, losing. And he gave his commencement address, or not commencement, his concession speech. And um, my dad, who was a middle-class Republican, moderate Republican, I guess, was really sad for him, even though this is a rich, rich Democrat. And I think that drama of winners and losers, of um, personal stakes, Nixon versus Kennedy, God, there was nothing like that growing up. It was so personal. It was like heavyweight boxing where there's one person and it's another person. Very exposed. And boxing, by the way, was huge growing up. The Gillette fights every Friday night. The Schmidt beer fights on Wednesday night in Philly. Uh, Boxing was considered okay, but now it's kind of just horrific. But you watch these ads for boxing. But I think it's the one-on-one competition, the, 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 the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, you know, by yeah. world sports. I think it was that. Also, the fear of the Soviets, as we talked about a while ago. The, the stakes were so high in politics. It wasn't about local politics. That never interested me. It was the national question, where do we stand in the world? How do we protect this country? Um, what kind of a country should it be? Should it be a country of a lot of social programs or should it be a country of uh, laissez-faire, of less government, more individual liberty. And that, that, that issue of individual versus social uh, 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 authority was a big part of my growing up. Obviously, mm-hmm. that debate was a big part. In fact, I would follow that all the way through the Berlin Wall coming down. I asked the same questions that I was asking in a library in Worcester, Mass. When I worked this summer in Worcester, I want to know the what's the natural order, socialism or or free enterprise. And I, I sort of came up to the conclusion that it could be socialism if everybody felt they were being treated fairly, if everybody felt they're getting their, their, their piece of the action. And it wouldn't be if they were getting screwed. 
And, and I think that's still true. Mm-hmm. I think maybe in some countries like Sweden, people obviously haven't overthrown those governments. So they like the big tax, you know, the big tax burden, but all the social responsibility mm-hmm. for health and everything, you know, education. If you could sum up the whole of your life, because you've been witness to so many grand events. I, mean, I think there's about eight different adventure moments you, you uh, list in the book. Do you think it's a movie, Chris? Uh, I think it's a movie. Around? Who, who's going to play ba- you? Kevin, ba- Kevin Bacon, maybe. Kevin Bacon's going to play you? I think that's good. I mean, you didn't want Tom Cruise or... Uh, that's pretty too, uh, too glamorous. Somebody Denzel Washington like might be good, too. You know, uh, he's a great actor. I, I like those characters, you know, that uh, they don't mention the ethnicity. They just they never mention it. You know? no. um, he's a great actor. Uh, but he's great. He's a, he's, a, he's a... I saw him give the commencement address for my daughter, which graduated from the University of Pennsylvania. He was a right. writer. He, he pulled one of these numbers where... I think he did the Orson Welles trick. He walked out and dropped his entire speech from the from the lectern all over the place. Yeah, that's what that's what Orson Welles did the night he did War of the Worlds. Did he, he walked out into the studio in New York, I guess, and he dropped his entire script on the floor right as they're going over the air. <laughs> and then he had another one in his pocket. So it was apparently some technique he had for getting everyone to relax. That's when he oh, talked about the world being attacked by aliens, <laughs> which is one of the most, without doubt, the most memorable broadcast in history. Oh, yeah. People totally. were jumping out of windows or whatever. What was going on? Totally. So if you could sum up your whole life in, in one sentence or one word, everything you've experienced, everything you've witnessed, what would that uh, phrase well, adventure. be? Adventure. adventure. There you go. I try to uh, put them in the book. I, uh, I wish I had more, but I have a lot. Yeah. You know, you I do, do like. <laughs> I I mean, I do feel like Zelig or somebody sometimes. What am I doing there at the wall coming down? What am I because I went there because I knew it was yeah. coming down. I was in South Africa because I got GMA ABC to pay for it. They sent me over. I was in Belfast because uh, MSNBC sent me over. I was in um, uh, I don't know. I was at CNBC. I I went to the Pope's funeral in the first part of the century, which I didn't talk about yet, but that was a fantastic experience. Uh, being up on Janikola above St. Peter's Square, listening to that incredible music and watching 5 million people wait in line to view uh, the former the late Pope. Um, and learning things. Like, I always try to learn something. Um, mm-hmm. Why was he Pope? He's a Polish Pope, the first non-Italian Pope for centuries, I guess. And one reason he was popular is that he took the job of uh, the role of Bishop of Rome seriously, not just as a title. And he would... Uh, Spent every weekend, he did about 170 of these weekends where he would stay, go to a parish in Rome. There are like 225 parishes in Rome. He would go to a parish, have dinner with the priests, get up and say mass the next morning, and then go to the rec, the, 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 the town, the, the, what do they call it, the town, the church hall, and, and meet with the kids, hmm. like for the CCD classes. And, uh, and they all felt like he had been a pastoral figure in their lives. He'd done it. And I, I kept thinking that. And then I saw the, the poor, poor people coming in from uh, Poland. My God, poverty, poor people coming in uh, to pay tribute to them. The Romans always look great. They dress well. They look good. They know what they're doing. They just, they're stylish as hell. But the Polish people came in in a different kind of uh, love of this guy. For He brought down the Iron Curtain in many ways. Mm-hmm. You know, not the yeah. 
That's that's pretty awesome. So what's next for Chris Matthews? Uh, are, you, are you working on maybe? Well, other... I'd like to. Uh, the next couple minutes will be spent encouraging people to buy this country, my life, and <laughs> politics. That's the next couple minutes. We've just been through that now. So that after that, I don't know. I, I think I better take a break to keep some uh, comedy in this household. <laughs> I, I mean, too much focus on me. me, me. He said, when you want, would you run for office? I, I, I don't feel comfortable. Yes, I do. But I don't like feeling comfortable with being comfortable with ego. Yeah. Like, let's talk about me. Let's talk about me. I, I, <laughs> I'd rather root for somebody. And, I, and people know that. I just like rooting for, for people that I look up to, whether it's Winston Churchill or it's Barack Obama. They probably didn't like each other, by the way. <laughs> I'm not sure there's – he got rid of that bronze the knee on the White House. Um, I, uh, I have heroes in uh, – I mean, like Johnny Carson was a hero of mine, and, and Steve Allen before that, and uh, and Sid Caesar was a huge hero of mine. I love Sid Caesar. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I meet these people, and I, I love Cary Grant movies. Yeah. You know, I was watching a Cary Grant movie the other night, uh, and um, Bringing Up Baby with Kate Hepburn, mm-hmm. and this is where this this thing about critical race theory comes in. Uh, why does he in the middle of the movie, apropos of nothing? This is a Hitchcock. No, it's not Hitchcock. Later, with Hitchcock movies. Apropos of nothing, say to somebody, that's white of you. Wow. Why did, they, why did a script writer, a script writer put that in? Just to take another punch at African-Americans, just bring them down a little, knock, yeah. them, knock them before they stand up again. And why in all the Hitchcock movies, are there no blacks on Fifth Avenue when they have the big street scenes? They must have gotten them off the street. And, and, wow. and the only African-Americans who show up are these guys they're almost comical figures that as, as Pullman car conductors on the train. Mm. And, that, and they're sort of not treated as grown-ups. The way they do it, it's diminishing. Why do we have to constantly find ways, you know, in show business where people should just be having fun to say, here's a chance to take a shot at them. Why did, I think it was fear yeah. or it was triumphalism or what the hell it was, but it is not imaginary. It was going on. I mean, yeah, the mummers were great in Philadelphia. The mummers were in, I didn't know this when I was a kid. They were in blackface mm-hmm. up yeah. until the early fifties. And what was the point of that? Yeah. You know, I, just I learned fun. a lot about John Wayne. I grew up idolizing John Wayne as a, as a, uh, you know, as a, as a way to be a man. And, you know, I, I had to learn a lot from James Baldwin. Eddie Glaude Jr. was on the show. We talked about it. Uh, someone wrote Jesus and John Wayne, uh, Kristen uh, uh, Dumais. I was on the show recently. And, and so, you know, there were all these things. And it's interesting because you've lived uh, a lot like I have, where you've gone from the USSR and hiding under your desk to where now kids are hiding under the desk for a different reason. And, uh, and you know, the USSR is still the same, but not. And, you know, the, the world has shaped so many different ways. I mean, you, you look at the arc of it. And how far we've come and we've had to progress and change how we think about things. And it's quite a journey, isn't it? Yeah. On race, I think mm-hmm. we're on the journey. We're on the journey. And I think everybody would say we're on the journey. Uh, yeah. We, I was never told growing up, but I'm a history buff about Tulsa. I learned mm-hmm. about it last week. Yeah. So what's that tell you? Yeah. Uh, I, uh, but I'm lucky because fortune is a better word. I, when we were in Peace Corps training down in Louisiana, down in the backwoods of Louisiana, backwater, poor whites, uh, uh, white-only signs on the mat, on the laundromat. Mm-hmm. When I was in grad school at North Carolina, I saw the white-only signs in the waiting areas and, and, and non, how they, were, they phrased African-Americans. And this other waiting area, 
And uh, we saw we were in college week. We drive drive down to drive overnight to Florida for college week, and we would uh, see the white only signs, mm-hmm. you know, the, the men's rooms, the mm-hmm. gas stations. Mm-hmm. So we did see it. I remember going to the slave quarters as a kid at Mount Vernon. Mm-hmm. But our attitude towards it was, isn't this curious? Isn't this odd? Isn't this quaint? Mm-hmm. It was like the quaintness of it more than the horror of it. It was like, mm-hmm. oh, it's quaint that they have these signs. And that, uh, and we felt a little superior because we were northerners. We wouldn't do that. Uh, yeah. But did we have many black people in our neighborhood? No. I had one African-American guy in my class would be in high school. And that was one. None in grade school. Uh, not in my grad school, school class in North Carolina. We, this is four years after civil rights, um, mm-hmm. the bill. So I think I think doing nothing has been a problem for us. I think it has Doing too. nothing is, 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 I don't think it's being, you know, Simon Legree is one thing, but everybody likes to have Simon Legree and go with the wind because then you can say there's just one bad white, white guy. Yeah. He takes the heat. You know, seeing that Confederate flag inside the Capitol was the summer moment for me that's just burned yeah. into my memory. Seeing that flag in, in you know, what you described as the Cathedral of Democracy was just horrific and extraordinary to me on top of everything else that happened that day. But just that flag getting into the Capitol was just, that just floored me. It still floors me to this day. But seeing that we have not resolved that issue after you know, 200, 450 years of, of all this crap of, of, uh, of white exceptionalism and, and uh, nationalism, <clears throat> uh, just really just, I mean, we, we, have, we still have so far to go. Well, um, I was at the uh, Lee Mansion a couple years ago, Custis Lee Mansion in Arlington. Mm-hmm. And I went over there to see the Kennedy grave. We wanted to go see Teddy's new grave and, and Bobby's and Jackson. So we went up to see the Lee Mansion. I'm standing on the under the portico. They, there's big columns, any bomb columns in front of that good-looking old building. And, uh, and there's a guy there standing there. I don't know where he's from, south somewhere. And he was another guy. And he says, keep up the fight. And my, afterwards, my wife Kathleen said to me, those guys didn't come up here to see the Kennedy graves. <laughs> They came up here to see Robert E. Lee's. Oh, wow. wow. Oh, and when wow. They say keep up the fight. This is this thing. This, this is the uh, thing with the, oh, wow. Post bellum thing that Trump has ignited. It was there before mm-hmm. him. He's not a creative thinker. All this stuff Trump does are uncreative. Mm-hmm. It's all about just ripping a scab off and saying, oh, it's about the immigrants or it's about the blacks or it's, uh, and he just knows. Or is the Chinese? They, they, it's always a, a tribal thing. Big surprise. And uh, he, he's ignorant of history, but he knew enough about race mm-hmm. that he could work it. And um, he knew exactly what he's done. Yeah. And now he's got. Now he's going out and said uh, it's Benedict Arnold stuff. He's Benedict yeah. Arnold, or maybe he's worse than him. Yeah. Uh, because he never Benedict Arnold, at least for a while, was a good guy. And then he became a bad guy. When was Trump a good guy? I mean, the idea that after having elections every two years for Congress, going back to 1788 for president since that year, every four years, our great pride is our electoral system. The pride of that electoral system is what guarantees freedom. Mm -hmm. I've thought this through. Freedom 
and and you know, free elections work together. If you have the free elections, you can keep your freedoms because then we, you, you won't get away with much. People still vote, and you won't get uh, you won't get elections unless you have freedom to have the elections. And uh, you got to have both. And uh, that's why the Constitution is so good. And we have to realize that these public officials swear no to the Constitution and to that Capitol building, not to anybody, not to Trump. Yeah. But they think they made an oath to Trump. They are confused. And there's about a quarter of the country might fit this category who uh, believe there's going to be a reinstatement in August of, of this guy. Oh, yeah, of course. Very, yeah. That, that happens that all word, the time, right? Where that word. You can't find that. You can <laughs> Google that word. You will not find it in the constitution. There is no hey, statement. <laughs> reinstatement. Pretty sure. Was that article five of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you're right. The fact that he would come up with a totally new word that has nothing historic about it. Uh, What's he going to do? He's pro- there's probably going to be trouble before August, that or after August. I mean, it's yeah. it's quite extraordinary um, when you uh, you know we had Tom Hartman on the show shortly after uh, January sixth, the big radio guy, and he he said uh, he said to me something that just threw me out of my chair. He goes, "You know what they call January sixth, don't you?" And I go, "What?" He goes, "Rehearsal practice." Oh, great. Yeah. And if you, you know, you study the, the, what was it? The, the Hitler bar uh, thing where he first tried, started to try to raise an insurrection. Yeah. The push. Yeah. And you know, so basically you look at this, you look at everything that's going on, the attack on election rights. Are you worried about where we're headed yeah, for 2022 and 2024? The progression. Mm-hmm. He comes out of the election two days later, he says he won. Then we find that two thirds of the Republican party agrees with him. They won. Mm-hmm. Then you find that January 6th, where people went in there, committed civic violence, killed people to get mm-hmm. in that building. Uh, then we find a general who says we should have, should, good word, should have a military coup. Mm-hmm. This all is a line of progression, because once it's said that the election was fraudulent, once you accept the first time in history an election is a fraud, that he's not legitimate. You know, I'm, I'm going to write something about this. Whatever you say about Nixon, and I, I see him as a mixed bag, complicated, maybe mostly bad, but a mixed bag. The week after he lost the election to Kennedy, and he had reason to doubt what happened in Chicago. He had reason to, have, to doubt what happened in Texas, because Lyndon Johnson was known as you know, Landslide Lyndon. That's what, that's what Jack <laughs> called him. There was no Republican Party in Texas at that time worthwhile. Nobody doing checking on what happened that day. So he could have said there was problems. Kennedy was worried he was going to say that. But when Kennedy called him up and said, let's get together, um, Kennedy said, yeah, let's get together. He sat and drank Cokes at the Key Biscayne Hotel in front of all the press. Nixon verified the election, made it clear. Jack, he did not want to mess up our side during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. There's patriotism there. Whatever else you say about the guy, he did the right thing. Back yeah. when he died, Teddy Kennedy paid tribute to the fact that how Nixon accepted Kennedy's victory. Yeah. And he had much more reason to complain than Trump ever did. Trump has <laughs> nothing. Now, Trump will say Arizona and Pennsylvania, but there's no case. Yeah. And, but Nixon had a case. You know, Dick Daly, the mayor of Chicago, was burning all those ballots. There's no way to recount them. They're burned a couple of hours. I mean, he went, you know, with, the help, with the help of a few good friends, I always wondered about that line. Was that yeah. mob? I think yeah. Ben Bradley overheard it, but <laughs> this means mob. And uh, 
But Nixon didn't complain. He, he did the one thing everybody should do is when I talked about concession speeches, the great religion of our country is that you play square. That In the end, when the other guy or woman wins, you say they win, they're the next leader. I'm late, I'm walking. And uh, that's it. But the, the founding fathers didn't allow for the fact there'd be somebody like Trump coming along who wouldn't yeah. even admit the obvious. Mm-hmm. It's always been, I mean, Adelaide Stevenson gave a great speech when he lost. Uh, Al Gore gave the best speech of his campaign when he lost. Hillary Clinton had to get up the next morning after being shocked in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, and walk over to the uh, cheaper hotel. By the way, she didn't go to a cheap hotel because they, were out, they didn't have the money at that point. The Pennsylvania Hotel, you know, we want to cross, it's not exactly exclusive, right across the street from Penn Station. And she had to give a big speech to all her followers. I've yeah. lost. He's president. Uh, John McCain had to do it. John Kerry, Mitt Romney, they all had to be capable of, and maybe they cried backstage. I mean, it's an emotional shock, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, to lose, to be rejected face-to-face by people who know you pretty well. We know mm-hmm. you. We don't like you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you have to be able to take that. And I don't think you should ever run for office unless you can just size yourself up and say, can I do that when the time comes? Can yeah. I face this country and say, okay, I'll live, I'll live with that. I think it's and probably that, even worse, isn't it, if you won the majority vote, but you lost well, like on the four, electoral like, For example, four million <laughs> votes. Yeah. Well, maybe yeah. that would be a salve, though. And Al Gore won about almost a half million. Yeah. A little more than a half million. Yeah, I think that that's that's strange, but that may hurt you more thinking about it months later. Yeah, you know, okay. If I'd only gone to Wisconsin that second trip, if I'd only gone to Pennsylvania, <laughs> why didn't I go to Erie? Wilkesboro? What happened to Wilkesboro? Why didn't we go there? Yeah. But, I love the uh, SNL I mean, joke. Now I've been, I mean, Frank Boss, my first boss, lost his real election in 76. I had gone out there to help him. And uh, when he lost, he stood up there a little bit teary-eyed with his wife. And he looked down at the crowd of us, and he said, I'm sorry I let you down. I, I, he was sympathetic to the people who worked for him for a couple of months. You know, I mean, that's a, that's a gentleman, a good person. Yeah. And uh, Trump doesn't even have a, the, the imagination to know that there are people that worked very hard for him and lost. He should have said, I'm sorry, I let you down instead of lying to them. Yeah. He, lied. You know, he knows you, he lost. You've seen this through your history. And, and, you know, we talked about Dick Cheney earlier in, in, in the presidency of Dick Cheney. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm afraid you're right. By the way, that's why the second term of W wasn't it wasn't really accompanied by Cheney's influence. Mm-hmm. I think W finally learned a lesson. A little late, two hundred thousand dead Iraqis and four thousand yeah. dead Americans. But he, uh, he think he finally got the message. He'd been uh, taken. Yeah, and, but it was interesting to see almost what looks like a changeover to Republican party from the Cheney party to the new Trump party. When they, when they put uh, Liz Cheney on the street, you know, from the, yeah. from her things. What, well, what don't, don't, think don't, don't quick about that. There's the same problem with docility there. Mm-hmm. Docility. I thought the horrible thing about the Iraq war was it was, we were led into it by not a great leader, a great orator, a great mind. It's sort of humdrum. W. He talked us into a war. I said, how did they do that? And then I go back and look at the polls. And the polls said, yep, there's hardly any casualties. Well, we're for the war. That's how narrow it was. Mm-hmm. And yet Biden, Hillary Clinton, John Kerry, they all did. They all went into that. That was the easy, that was the easy vote. Oh, yes, sir. That's an easy vote. And they could have said, no, we don't attack other countries. We're not the aggressor. The aggressor is the bad guy. 
This mm-hmm. country never attacked us. Why are you? We were encouraged in that fight between them and the Iranians. What are we kidding? I think we were, mm-hmm. we're rooting for the Iraqis. Uh, I mean, WMD was bogus. It was a bogus discussion. I don't care. They, it, it's not whether they had them or not. It was the fact we're going to war because of some other countries' arsenal. I don't. I don't think we've ever done that before. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And now we've been in it for you know twenty plus years or whatever it is now. Oh right. yeah. By the way, you know, you, the simple lesson of Vietnam, which nobody learned, we're coming home. Yeah. We're not the Brits. We're not going in there to stay. You know, when you're in the Peace Corps in Africa, you're very different than the British are still there. The British are putting on one act clay contests. And Gilbert and Sullivan, they're there for the hall. They got their clubs, you know, they, they're, mm-hmm. they're settling in. The American guys just went, when's the movies coming this weekend? When are we getting a movie? And when are we going home? And that's when every time I see a war movie, anytime, Americans like it in America. We don't have to go live somewhere else. Yeah. And, uh, and the Brits wanted to get out of that little island of theirs and go there. It's like in Lawrence or Arabia. You have a love of desolate places. Remember that? There you Alligator. go. You British... <laughs> Have a love of desolate places. <laughs> yeah, the, I mean, you see, you watch the the fading of the empire. So let me put you on the spot here. Who's the better speaker of the house, Nancy Pelosi or Tip O'Neill? On discipline, Nancy. Ah, oh, there you go. I've watched her shepherd that flock mm-hmm. pretty well, and uh, she has a uh, a good way of bringing the ones who want to be known for breaking out from the pack, like AOC and the squad, they want to be known for the ones that are standing out. They don't want to be fitting in. So she understands their politics. Uh, She uh, hasn't made enemies of them. She, uh, she tries to give them a balance of the uh, action. And then she knows we had, we, the speaker had in our day had 40 more Southern Democrats. Mm. They're all gone now. Dixiecrats, they're all, all Republicans now, those yeah. districts. So we had people that already settled in on the other side. And uh, for the years of the Kennedys and Johnsons and all that, they always voted with the, with the Democrats once in a while, Social Security, Medicare, things like that. But generally they were Southerners. They voted with the Republicans. And that the party always looked bigger than it was. You know. what Just do you remember, think- go back and look at the Civil Rights Bill. It's very instructive. The Civil Rights Bill was passed by mostly Republicans. It's just yeah. a fact. The yeah. South had 22 segies mm-hmm. in, the, in the United States Senate. Segregationists, out-and-out out out segregationists. Roosevelt had them. Look at Sparkman. He ran with Adlai Stevenson in 1952. A segregationist from Alabama. Mm-hmm. The Democratic Party has something, has something to answer to here. They definitely have. It was interesting how it flipped uh, between the Republicans and the civil well, rights and stuff during Lyndon Johnson. Well, the Republicans have a habit now picking up where the Democrats drop somebody. Mm-hmm. If they're not loyal to working white people, the Republicans are there to grab a hold of them and marry them. Mm-hmm. And if they're, if they're not happy with that, if the Democrats don't like Southern segregations, the Republicans are all too glad to jump. Come on aboard. We'll take you. Mm-hmm. you know, it's not, you know, I think uh, uh, if they feel that uh, they don't like some of the gender equality, mm-hmm. they're going to go over to the Republican side. You know, it's like the Republicans pick up the, uh, the fallout. Yeah. Well, they, I mean, Nixon did that with the Southern strategy and he realized yeah. that the unions weren't going to go for him. So they, they went after the, the, the corporate money and the, and the, well, he went after the unions too. Just remember he started affirmative action. Yeah, get to the, right. the Philadelphia plan. You know mm-hmm. about the Philadelphia plan? No. 
Well, it's about basically forcing the Italians and the Irish to break up in the construction trades to black people. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, because everybody's getting a job from their uncle. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't get in the guild. You don't work anymore. So Nixon says, here's where I can be a civil rights leader and screw the Democratic unions at the same time. And he gave us the drug war, which we still have. With Tip O'Neill, what would Tip O'Neill thought of Nancy Pelosi tearing up the State of the Union speech? That well, was you're, you're cruel. He wouldn't have done it. But, you know, I mean, he wouldn't have done it. But he. Uh... If he had seen it, what would well, he have thought? Like, okay, this is, this is his relationship. Maybe you'll get this. I think you might, judging by your personality. I figured you were <laughs> So he gets a call from Tip Reagan. And. Uh, he gets a message out on the golf course somewhere on a weekend somewhere. And he sends the message back to Reagan. Tell him I'll call him when I'm finished my round. <laughs> Don't you love that phrase? When I'm finished my round. <laughs> the, the, other, the other one I liked was the tips in the office during the week. He's in his office watching some mid uh, Big Ten football game. I don't know, Michigan, Wisconsin. And Reagan calls, and, 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 and Tip would yell, did you see that play? Did you see that play? <laughs> and Reagan says, what are you talking about? It's the Michigan game. Can't you see what's going on here? And Reagan, Reagan says, what channel is it on? So Reagan, Reagan tries to keep up with him on the sports stuff. You know, it's just fun. I mean, that's where he would talk to Reagan. It was like that. It was not, he would never publicly uh, do that. Is that you know? You write in the book about how there used to be you know this thing where people could get along, work together. They could they could uh, they could uh, you know make things happen together, even though they're on opposite yeah, ends of the earth. Are, yeah. Do but we? I, don't know, I didn't rose that up. I think they do when they had to, like saving Social Security, mm-hmm. uh, dealing with the hell hell going on in Northern Ireland, ending the Cold War, uh, dealing with arms reduction, nuclear arms reduction. It wasn't like let's have fun. It was more like oh god, we got to deal with this thing. We got to do it. Do you see us ever getting back to that, or are we just can continue? I mean, we're headed towards fascism the way we're going, and the way the January sixth practice. Oh was, God, so. I, uh, I don't know. I, I think this is a tough time. I don't see this administration getting anything done. Okay, and I, I say that because if you don't get rid of the filibuster and they don't have the fifty votes to do that, mm-hmm. then they'll demand sixty votes for everything, and that means voting rights, police reform immigration reform. I mean, everything they want to do, infrastructure. Even. The only thing I can see getting through, and therefore that's a good thing to get to that. I might disagree with the left, but in the end, the hard left will say better something than nothing, because if you get nothing, the hard left will be mad about it. I mean, they will. And they're not going to say good work. You didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in a way they have to have a Nancy Pelosi compromise with the squad. I think we get something like, suppose, Five Republican senators have agreed to infrastructure to something short of a trillion dollars, but say $800 billion. Biden, the president, will then have to decide, and Manchin will have to decide, and and Cinema, Arizona. Those two senators have to decide whether that's enough bipartisanship. Because remember, Joe Manchin's not saying, I want a better bill. Joe Manchin is saying, I want bipartisanship. Mm -hmm. So if that's enough, it might be. Knowing and good lobbies would say, let's try Manchin with five Republicans, maybe a few more, but we're going to do this through reconciliation. So we will have enough votes to do it, and he and he will join us in reconciliation. So then you get a bigger, a big spending bill through. Uh, then what do you do next? I don't know. Yeah. But in my day, we uh, 
when we were fighting with the Republican leader over this uh, infrastructure, uh, and he was dumping over the Democrats for spending all this money. I uh, called up the uh, chief engineer in Peoria, Illinois, and I asked him to give me a list of all the uh, bridges below safety code in Bob Michaels' district. And tip went on, the tip went on the floor of the house, ran on the well, and read the names and addresses of all the bridges in his opponents, the Republican leaders' district, that had bridges falling down. He turned Bob Michael's face red. He goes running in the back room. He passed the bill. I got to tell you, that's the way to play hardball. It's clean politics. Just I, I don't know why they aren't mischievous like that. I mean, I used to be like that. I would dig up. I would organize rallies and stuff like that at labor units, and Tip would come up to you and say. Is that one? Is this one of yours? I don't love doing it. Is this one of yours? So um, <laughs> it also, when I screwed up, it'd say another great tribute to Gabriel. If I screw up one of these things, it'd say fix it. <laughs> I loved it when he'd say that because then he figured I could do it. Fix it. Oh. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if we have a hard out with you, but I don't want to keep you all day, but I could talk to you for days. Who who came up with the name Hardball for your show and why? Well, my book, 1988. Mm-hmm. My first book was Hardball, How Politics is Played, Told by One Who Knows the Game. Mm-hmm. It was a word used by, uh, well, it comes from uh, Mr. Dooley, the, old, the Irish bartender in Chicago, I guess it is. Mm-hmm. And he would uh, he'd say politics ain't beanbag. That's where it comes from. It's there Hardball. Because way back to that uh, Finley, whatever his name is, that Irish writer. That's cool. And, uh, and uh, that's where he came. And then Pat Buchanan did a, when he was being uh, probed during Watergate, and he would go through, there's hard, there's dirty tricks, there's this, there's hardball. He, he would show the different categories of degree, matters of degree of how bad, sometimes it's just hardball. Yeah. And sometimes dirty tricks and sometimes other. Things. I, I, I said it was clean Machiavellian politics, which was, in other words, clever politics, but clean. And uh, acceptable, and yet you win. Yeah, there you go. So that's what I use. And on the show, I used it to mean I'm going to ask the person three times for the question. Three times. I'll go a little further than a normal person or any civilized person. And I'll just keep asking the question until they answer it. Even if I become obnoxious in doing it. And I succeeded in becoming obnoxious. That didn't work. <laughs> people do not like their own people. They hate it when I went after a liberal, for example. And I'd say, come on, come on, come on. Let's, let's play this a little. Let's get this out of here. Hardball. But, you know, I just, like you, I just look at it. I'm here for the people watching or listening. I'm here yeah. for them. I'm yeah. not here for the guests. I'm here for yeah. the person who wants to answer the question, and uh, and I get to ask it. So I'm, I'm very lucky. And we're lucky to but have But I did you. have a life besides hardball and television. That's why I wanted to go. There you go. Uh, anything more you want to plug on the book before we go out? No, it's $26 now. I just checked. And, uh, <laughs> No, Are you refreshing gotta, the page to, to see I've it. I've always been on the bestseller list. I want to get bit on with this one. And yeah. I think it's a heck of a book. Yeah. It's the best I could write for 70 years of life. And I wrote for two years on this baby. Two years of just mm-hmm. writing it and getting it right and, and shaping it down. So it's, it's the least amount of time to learn the most. Well, there, you there you go. There you go. Well, it, it, we'll just have to look forward to the next book in the next 70 years. So do that you know the great line frank Mankiewicz line uh somebody said just so a guy dies at 84 and, and somebody says that's not a bad run and the frank Mankiewicz, who's kennedy's guy said not if you're 83 <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, Chris, it's been wonderful to have you on the show. And you're welcome back anytime. We'd love to have I'll, you. I'll be back. I think so many people miss you on the, I, I want to speak for a lot of people. A lot of us miss you on MSNBC. We miss the show. So thank you thank so you. much for being part of our lives and everything. And, and uh, thank you for being on our show. You've got a great name, by the way. Are you Christopher? Well, Christian Voss, I think, is the birth Christian name. God, that sounds very. But good. I like I like Chris Nordic. Voss better. Very yeah. Nordic. It's iron. It's ironic because I'm an atheist. You could be a ski instructor with that. <laughs> well, I think it's our German that we have in us. So there you well, go. I'll be I'll be there saying I'll be there saying so. There you go. Well, Chris, thank you. <laughs> you know, we left in the 1800s, so we skipped the whole we skipped the whole Hitler. I took a Fyrjarian gymnasium. Yeah, I think a lot of German. <laughs> well, Thank it's you. been a storied life that you've lived, Chris. Thank you very much for being on the show. We certainly uh, appreciate you spending time with us. Thank you very much, and and for all your story career and every, all the all the stuff you've done to uplift us and keep us. Yeah, you know, just the opening of Hardball was just always fun to tune into. Let's play Hardball. Let's play Hardball. Yeah, there it's you fun. go. Nika Brzezinski loves it. Thank yeah, you. she she always talk about it. like like Joe would always be like she always has to watch the opening line. She's, she, she tunes in every time. So check it out, guys. This Country, My Life in Politics and History by Chris Matthews. Uh, you can check out all of his extraordinary library books that he's written as well. This one just came out on June 1st, 2021. Check out the other ones. Order it up because it sounds like he's refreshing to see. It shows number one bestseller in R&B soul artist biographies on my screen. So uh you're who knows the, how that came about who knows I, that, I don't know I'll take, it. I'll take it r&b and soul artist biographies you're up there with uh i don't know somebody in r&b uh maybe maybe you'll be you know you'll be up there with uh beyonce James Brown. James Brown. <laughs> anyway thank you very much chris for being on our show we certainly appreciate continued success my friend thanks so much for tuning in go to youtube.com for just chris foss hit the bell notification go to goodreads.com for just chris foss all of our groups on facebook linkedin twitter and all that good stuff thanks so much for tuning in be safe and we'll see you guys next time